Welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Everybody, welcome in. It's David Summers hosting another studcast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller, on the only podcast on the planet which is documenting the real story of professional wrestling. Here comes 100 years of rich wrestling history as told by the stud. Now, please welcome the originator of the studcast, the man who changed the podcasting world with the super studcast. We step back into the ring and back into time with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. How's your week, Ron? What's going on? Oh, man, it's great. It's always great. Uh, doing fine. Hadn't got COVID. So, you know, we've been doing that super stud cast. So I'm real happy about that. And, uh, yep, just in real good shape and uh, looking forward to the day, man. we got another good one today. Just uh, ready to crank into it, man, whenever you are. And how are you doing, by the way? I'm doing great. Uh, and, and congratulations once again, because a couple of weeks ago, you set records with this stud cast. And I, I, I forgot how many weeks we you've been doing this stud cast, but this is ag- absolutely amazing work. One hour plus shows and uh, 171. Is that how many we're up to yeah. now? Yeah. 171. That's awesome. I think it was number one, 169. It was one of those uh, Terry Funk. One of those Terry Funk uh, championship. Yeah. I think it was the one in which we actually talked about the match. And the one right before it was a really big number as well. And uh, we just didn't have the time to get the Funk match in. And obviously it didn't hurt, I guess, that, that I held it over a little bit because people came back and listened <laughs> to it anyway. They didn't get too mad about it. That's for right. Sure. So, yeah, yeah, it's been great. I um, mean, our, our numbers, uh, we got fans all over the world and they keep growing. The numbers, and I'm really, really happy about that, and I really appreciate seeing that big number. And and as you say, after you figure 170 episodes, and you're 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 starting to crank bigger numbers than ever, it's a it's a good sign. We got a lot of listeners out there that enjoy what we do, man. And uh, That's awesome. I'm really, I'm really happy about that. There is a reason they called you the storyteller. Okay, so where are we riding to today, Ron? What's going on? So we're going to begin another training day. Uh, t- today's training right off the bat. And then we're going to put on those Booker hats again today. And the focus is going to be on one of the best and maybe one of the longest running angles I ever did as a Booker, actually. And it's based around the great worker, Dick Steinborn, and his alter ego, the gladiator. Once he wanted to wear a mask, then he became the gladiator. We're already doing something confusing at this point in Southeastern wrestling for the fans in a way. Because he's the gladiator, he comes on TV as Dick Steinborn. He shows up in the town wearing a mask as a as a mask wrestler called a gladiator. And uh, we've never done a, anything before with a combination of the two of these guys. But we're seriously about to go and confuse fans now in this today's training. We're, we're going to take it to a new level. So we're going to cover the Southeastern card in this one of Knoxville on October 29th, 1976. It's going to be when Ron Wright returns to the main event for the first time in five months at Southeastern. And we're going to get a good look at Big Bad John, our first look at him on television at Southeastern. He's the new manager, obviously, of the Southeastern champion, Ronnie Garvin. We're going to discuss the great TV six days before those matches, the results. We're going to close the day with the next learning tree. It's from a gentleman named Mr. Jeremy Harlan. He asked, when you were injured in the Terry Funk championship match, you must have had ideas as the booker 
for yourself after that match. How frustrated was it for you when you were hurt and could not wrestle, nor help your company when you were maybe the hottest as a baby face since Southeastern started? Great question. And uh, it's very apropos, and it goes back to this, uh, this, what we were just talking about, that episode that had record numbers. Yeah, because you had built up, I mean, literally for months up to that point, and then at the end of the match, when Garvin comes with the knee to your throat, that changed everything. So no matter what you had planned prior to that, it was all thrown out. So great question, and that's coming up later. Okay, so Ron, we are ready for today's training. I think you said we were going to be wearing the Booker hat today. Is that right? Yep, yep. You're exactly right, my man. You're already on it today, Dave. Thank you. Thank so you. So in, <laughs> in today's training, we're going to put on that Booker's hat again, and we're going to focus on one wrestler. Uh, somebody who arrived in Southeastern on February 2nd, 1976, on one of the first Coliseum shows. That was Dick Steinborn. He came in as a babyface, not only the babyface, but a mid-American heavyweight champion. Nine months later, he was still a force in Southeastern. On the Friday night of October 29th, 1976, that's the week we're going to be focusing on in this stud cast. So I thought uh, I would take this subject matter of uh, what I was doing with Dick Steinborn and use it in today's training because it's definitely a great booking concept here that uh, we were trying to do that hadn't, I don't think, ever been done before. So he had basically, Steinborn captured the hearts of the Southeastern fans by early May of 1976. And then on Friday night, June 4th, I don't know if you'll remember, he was uh, finishing uh, finishing a never-before-and-since three-week straight program with me of babyface matches in which uh, we went Broadway. We had uh, a couple of different finishes, and uh, this was the third week, the third of these title matches. And on that night, which became known, I started calling it the Southeastern Slaughter, Tor Tanaka, Norvell Austin, and Homer Odell attacked both of us in the middle of this match without a warning. And they left us both laying. Actually, we went to the hospital. I got hurt. Uh, my, sh my shoulder got torn out. And Steinborn got hurt even worse. So we were off for weeks right after this was done. So Steinborn didn't return until July 30th of 76. And once he came back, he decided he wanted to come back and he wanted to be a mass wrestler called a gladiator. So it was a constant problem. He was, man, for Tanaka, Austin, and Homer. He was working against them quite regularly. He was a problem for Mephisto and Louis Tillet, too, that were heels at that time. He won the Southeastern Championship from toward Tanaka on August the 13th, 76, and he held that championship until October 1st of 76. Now, Ronnie Garvin finally defeated him, but that was just three weeks before this event that we're going to be talking about today. So since his arrival back after the Southeastern slaughter, he'd been driving heels crazy by appearing on TV with no mask as Dick Steinborn, and then he would show up at the matches and be the gladiator. And, uh, you know, guys were like, well, this is a crazy thing, Ron. What the hell is going on, you know? So it was a very good fans because fans definitely enjoyed it. You know, they would go out there occasionally and say, What's the deal with Steinborn? Why isn't he just wrestling here as Dick Steinborn? Why does he want to be the gladiator? So, you know, everybody pretty much knew who the gladiator was. <laughs> it was a little bit of, like I said, fans enjoyed it. It was a unique concept. But uh, at this point, I was ready to take this thing to the next level. And, you know, as a booker does, I sit around and think about things. And I came up with an idea that I said, geez, this is over the top. Let's go with it. So for me, it was the time to take that happy fan angle that the fans were all happy about and turn it in just the opposite and turn it into heat. So on this stud cast, the original gladiator, Dick Steinborn, is going to get hurt in this stud cast today. And the real Dick Steinborn won't be seen again in Southeastern until February of 1977, which is about almost three months down the road before yeah. he's going to be able to come back. However, his alter ego, the so-called gladiator is going to remain and he's going to inexplicably all of a sudden join the heels. And so now the fans are going like, you know, and, uh, and to put it as a Steinborn would is going to put it in the future. When he come back, when he comes back to action, he's going to say his gladiator outfit and his identity was hijacked. 
by the southeastern hills. <laughs> he didn't call them the hills, but he says the guy stole my identity. You know, so so, so now here's the point: the Steinborn's hurt. He goes back to Orlando, Florida, where his father lives, and where he lived for many, many years was his home. And while he's gone, the hills find themselves another gladiator. And they put the same outfit on him, and he looks kind of similar to the gladiator, to Steinborn. And the fans now are really, <laughs> they're really confused. So, so fans are soon going to realize that the gladiator had just a little bit slightly different look and, and a totally different attitude. You know, fans were not aware for some time that Steinborn was not still the gladiator. And on October 29th, 1976, uh, this card, we're going to be talking about it today. The Gladiator is going to be involved in another match. He's going to get injured there. He's going to get carried from the ring. He's going to get sent to the hospital. Mm. And fans are going to soon wonder why their old Gladiator was a little different in appearance, yet so different in his style of wrestling. So why was they going to ask all of a sudden uh, he being seen with the heels, the Gladiator? Uh, and much less of wrestling partners with some of them. So why was he there thinking so nasty now in his matches? Why didn't he talk anymore like he used to? You know, and where the hell was Dick Steinborn? You know, like, <laughs> the fans are like, what the heck is going on with this gladiator? So the Steinborn angle, as I got to call on this, became even more intriguing to me. It was unlimited what I could do with it. <laughs> you know, and fans began to ask less. And all the baby faces, what had happened to the gladiator, Dick Steinborn, uh, why he had changed so dramatically, you know? What's up with Steinborn? He ain't the same guy. So this controversy continues on into January 1977, and Les is going to finally call Dick Steinborn, and they're going to send the camera out to his house. They're going to record a television interview, and Steinborn's still recovering from his injury, It's and, and uh Steinborn's going to tell everybody on the TV that he had no idea. He didn't even know there's another gladiator that's still there after he left. He wasn't even aware that there's a gladiator there. He's like, who are you talking about? You know, I'm the gladiator. Unless <laughs> <laughs> because not now. <laughs> you know? So we, we worked this little deal and, uh, for months and months. And then, you know, and then the fans start put things together, you know, because uh, since Steinborn, he, he didn't even know that there was another gladiator in Southeastern after he left. Who was this new gladiator? What the heck is it? Who is this guy? Uh, or maybe did Steinborn know, you know? Mm. So, Wait, so. <laughs> that is, that is kind of confusing. And I can see how the fans would have been asking themselves or each other. So, I mean, what are you doing to us now, Ron? Was there another gladiator wrestling in Southeastern since October of 76? And what was, what was his real name? Well, I, I tell you what, I'm going to, I'm going to play a little game with our fans here a little bit, you know? So I'm going to give fans a hint of who he was. Yeah. There's another gladiator. He's wearing the same outfit that Steinborn wore, except he's not a baby face anymore. He's a full blown heel. And I'll give fans a little hint about who, who this guy is and, uh, and see who can answer that question first after this episode airs. All right. But wait, what is the hint? Okay. Uh, the new gladiator, he's impersonating Dick Steinborn, and he's a former member of a very famous tag team family. A former member of a famous tag team family. Yeah. Your, your mind never stopped when it came to booking, did it, Ron? No, <laughs> right. oh, it, it never did, man. I tell you, you know, being a booker, you got to be kind of a nut, you know, and, uh, and the more you book, the maybe nuttier you get, you, you know, so, so, you know, I got off on this one and, and I, maybe, I don't know the fans, he never became a really big star. He never right. got to the top in Southeastern, but boy, he, I had fun with him, <laughs> you know, and I, I guess the fans, it really got to them, too, because they got to finally, that was the big question. Who the hell is the gladiator? <laughs> <laughs> so, fans, if you're out there, whoever figured this out, uh, you know, get on social media. And, and I've got so many fans there. And <laughs> just uh, and leave me your answers. Who can figure out for me who the gladiator was after Dick Steinborn was hurt in 1976? All right. Good stuff. All right. So where are we riding next, Ron? Well, 
Let's go right into that night of October 29th, 1976 on that card. The first match on that card of October 29th, 76 was Don Wright against David Schultz. The second was the gladiator, Dick Steinborn versus newcomer, Rip Smith. Third was the great Mephisto against the fast rising star, Don Canoodle, who was really getting better every week and starting to get pretty good on the mic too. Fourth was a six man elimination match. Those kind of matches had three men on each team. And as a guy lost, he had to go to the dressing room. He was eliminated, basically. And that's where the match name came from. And uh, the match continues until there's only one man standing. Whoever has the last guy standing is going to be the winner of the elimination tag. In that tag match, the six-man tag is Tor Tanaka, Jimmy Golden, and Mike Stallings against the Von Steiger brothers and Louis Tillette. The main event was Ron Wright versus Ronnie Garvin, managed for the first time as the named manager by Big Bad John. It was in Chilhowee Park's indoor Jacobs building that night, the event. Then after Ronnie Garvin and his new manager, Big John, had hurt Rob the week before, Ron Wright was returning to be in the sole main event spot for the first time in five months. He had been a long time since he had been on top. So before we give everybody the results of that card, let's talk about the TV six days before on Saturday, October 23rd. The show opened up, as usual, with a tight shot of Les announcing the lineup for the TV show for the day, just as we always did. And when he finished, the camera shot expanded from the close-up back to the full screen of Les. And he's seated at the set with a man making his first appearance ever on Southeastern Wrestling. He's six foot six inches. He's over 300 pounds. It's a big bad John. And he's wearing a long black coat. He's got stringy and dirty black hair. He got a bushy black beard. He's wearing a huge black funeral parlor, I call it, hat. One of those black hats that you just mm-hmm. saw on a guy that's, you know, riding back in the old days on the wagon and he's He's got a casket in the back, and he's got that big old hat, the black hat on. <laughs> so, And there's Ronnie Garvin standing behind him with the southeastern belt over his shoulder. But, you know, on the entire set, behind the three of them, as usual, you've got that, that uh, chroma key side of the set is this big still shot of Big Bad John uh, bending forward. He's got Rob hanging over his back, and he's holding him only by his chin. I mean, those in the studio audience that had been there at the matches the night before when Big Bad John's nobody had ever seen him, he arrives out of nowhere and he ends up getting robbed and hangs him over his back and and he gets the win basically for Garvin by doing it. The studio crowd, those that had been there and seen it, they cringe, man. You could see them over there. They were like, oh, God, that was horrible. And uh, those that had never seen the big man before, uh, nor had any idea about his extremely painful and, and impressive hangman hold mm-hmm. that uh, John used for a finish. They were shocked, man. So I'm pretty sure that all of the people out there at home watching was pretty shocked as well, you know, because uh, it was a nasty-looking thing. The shot, the still shot was. So let's introduce Big Bad John to Southeastern fans by saying he knew John's reputation and that he was appalled by his unannounced entrance last night in Ronnie Garvin's match. And then uh, Les, as, as in the normal Les fashion, he, he kind of points up over his shoulder to the shot that's back there, and he goes, what was that all about, man? <laughs> you know? So Big Bad John spoke his first words at Southeastern. He looked up at the shot on the set, and he looked back down at Les, and then in his low, gravelly voice, Straight out of a horror movie, he said, uh, he said, that's what you're going to see a lot of. <laughs> he said, bodies being hung, then sent to hell. He said, right <laughs> after my champion jumps on their throats. <laughs> wow. <laughs> First thing out of his mouth on TV. And Les almost jumped back from him like, oh, my God, did you really say that? And then he finally asked him, he goes, uh, then are you going to be Ronnie Garvin's manager? You know, he, he's trying to figure out what the hell does he, well, you, surely you're not going to keep that up, John. So Big Bad John responds when he asks him that. He goes, uh, he goes, he needs no manager. He says, he knows what to do. He says, 
I'm here to collect the bodies after he finishes with them. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> so, wow. so they're less, now he's pretty much at a loss for words. So something <laughs> that didn't happen at less very often to be at a loss for words. So he finally says, uh, your champion is scheduled to wrestle right now on TV. What do you expect from him today? And John says, I expect him to crush another throat, and then I'm going to straighten the throat out and prepare the body for hell. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, wow. Now, Les, is really, he's really pieces. So Big Big John just gets up like, hey, it's time to get him to the ring. And uh, and he, he stands looking over the top of Les, and Garvin goes straight to the ring, kind of leads him. And then Big John <laughs> kind of follows him along, and the camera gets him. He's walking really slow, like a mortician would walk. And he's shuffling them big old size 16 Western boots, man. He had a big old foot. And he's just shuffling his feet. And he just kind of shuffles over to the edge of the ring. He's ready to go. So Garvin, man, Big John put Garvin into another orbit. I mean, Ronnie was stiff. But wow. I mean, now he's got the new manager. He's really happy with the big guy, too. And Garvin just got more violent than ever for this one, boy. I mean, his slaps and his punches connected with, they sounded like thuds, you know, like rocks being thrown against a big old thick dirt wall or something. Boom, boom. It was just like every one of them. People just cringed in the audience. You could see him like, oh, gosh, oh, my God. And he set the opponent up in the middle of the ring when he got ready, went up on the top rope, and he flew again, by golly, he's, up there in the lights, scraping the studio lights at the top of the studio roof, and then planted his knee, obviously, squarely in the, in the throat of another poor, defenseless youngster. <laughs> you know, I, yeah, I was getting these young job boys, you know, because uh, Ronnie was just getting more heat that way. Yeah. So when the referee counted Garvin's opponent out, Big John stepped up on the apron and then just stepped over the top rope. He pulled the the guy's body, the lifeless body off of the map. He, he grabbed him by the chin and he swung him around and over his shoulders and, and on his big, enormous back. Hung wow. him there, basically. Another hangman victim. There he was. Another, he hung him after he'd already been killed by Garvin. And then the referee stepped forward. He tried to stop him, you know, but Garvin pushed the ref back. Like, get back, get back. He ain't done. So John bent forward to make it pain worse, and he bounced the body up and down on his back a couple of times, and then he dropped him like a bad habit. (laughs) (laughs) And like another one bit the dust. There it was, man. He was a crumpled mess. And, uh, you know, it was getting really hard to find job boys for Ronnie Garvin for TV matches, man, because he was just, oh, he was killing guys. It was horrible. I can see how that was easily true. And what about these job boys? Did they ever come to you or did they, uh, I mean, were they afraid to come to you and go, wait a minute, you're, you're, you're putting me in there with Garvin. <laughs> well, you know, it was really funny when guys learned to wrestle, they were willing to pay the price. Uh, you pretty much had to start. You didn't get booked when you just started wrestling, usually in the house show, you kind of started as a job guy on TV. You knew you were going to get beat up pretty bad. You know, but uh, you had to do it. So I was lucky. There was a lot of guys running around that had trainers somewhere that were sending them to me. And I would I would take in these guys and uh, I had no pity. You know, somebody had to work with him. So it was, <laughs> was it just about exposure for these guys? They were on TV so that 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 counted. Yeah. I mean, you know, obviously they got killed on TV. I mean, right. they, they didn't they didn't get over, you know, but uh it was a beginning, and that's the way it was for a whole lot of young wrestlers. I mean, yeah. you had to have yeah. it begin somewhere, and you began as a job boy on TV. Almost everybody did that. In fact, that's yeah. where Arn Anderson started for me in Southeastern Wrestling. So you could go from there to being wow. a star, obviously. Yeah. And he that's pretty kind of hard to believe, too. The interesting. Okay. So these two, Ronnie Garvin and, and Big Bad John, they had made a tremendous first impression together, boy. And I had a unique way of knowing when somebody really got over on TV because there was one guy in my production crew that was always the first to react. And that was Bill Kincaid, the director. (laughs) After he saw this and he saw John hang this kid and after Ronnie had already killed him, uh, 
Bill Kincaid turned to me and I'm sitting upstairs with him and he watches the whole thing with me. And he turned to me and he says, he says, good Lord, Ron. He goes, you found another monster. <laughs> wow. And that's so, coming from the director of the show who yeah, sees the show the every week. Director of the show. And I wow. Was, I was like, <laughs> why? You know, <laughs> so this first segment, man, it was a rocket ship launch, man. That's what I felt like for the opening of that TV show. I mean, like you couldn't open it with better than that. And the director's the one guy that says, my God, you got another monster on. So that dastardly duo of heels was followed by another one in this TV show, the great Mephisto. He came roaring into the studio and boy, he took his era back to another level. I'll tell you that. He, he beat his man with the camel clutch and then he refused to release it. Even after the bell continued to ring. Finally, the referee had to grab him by the shoulders and literally pull him off of, of another poor job boy. And, uh, you know, it was obvious to me sitting up there in the control room that my heels were beginning to compete with each other <laughs> you know? because they, he had watched, obviously, he had watched the first match and what Ronnie did and, mm-hmm. and what Big Bad John did. And by golly, he wasn't going to be he wasn't going to be outdone. So uh, no owner or any booker could dislike the fact of what I was watching up there. The only ones that didn't like it were the job boys in the ring with him. <laughs> they didn't like it, no doubt. So as, as Jim Barnett would say when I'm sitting up there and I see this, as Jim Barnett would say, I could see nothing but money, money, money. <laughs> <laughs> it was, wow, these boys are after it today. So. The great Mephisto, he split the interview time with his opponent for the following Friday, and that was Don Canoodle. Canoodle was in Studio B. We cut him up. We did uh, one in one studio, one in another. We did that quite a bit. And Don was getting better on the mic every week. And he was a very young but dedicated boy, man. Uh, He wanted to learn his craft, I'll tell you that. And he had a great line in this interview. uh, And uh, I just kind of remember it. It was so good. He had a great line about, about how he would rather ride the camel jockey than the camel, but he couldn't tell which was which when he came to Mephisto. <laughs> he didn't know which was the camel and which one was the jockey. <laughs> <laughs> and the crowd popped. The crowd and were listening to it. They popped, man. And then Mephisto's on the other screen. It's a split screen. And boy, you could see Mephisto react. It was like, Oh, he set up, man, like, hey, did he say that? <laughs> so he threatened right away, Mephisto. He threatened that young, stupid infidel. He called him, uh, you know, he said, you're going to feel the fire, boy, on Friday night. <laughs> you know, so I loved it. You know, I mean, there was some shooting going on early in this program. It was right up my alley. I kind of liked it. So we get to the personality profile. It was with the fan favorite, Ron Wright. Fans were always happy to see Ron back. And uh, he'd been back a couple of weeks, but he'd not been on top. And they were glad to see him up there in the, in the main event. And he and Les watched the video of Ronnie Garvin's match from the night before with my brother Rob. And this is, bear in mind, the first match after I'd been hurt. It was, uh, it was the fans in the building's first time to ever see Big Bad John in Southeastern Wrestling. He wasn't booked. But he ends up coming in and uh, and taking a part in this finish. So Les and Ron Wright, they watched this uh, the finish, which was pretty pretty nasty finish. Uh, Rob was doing really good. He was making a great comeback on Garvin. The referee got bumped and out on the floor, and then Big Bad John just comes down the aisle, gets in, steps over the top rope. He hangs Rob just like he did the boy on TV. And then he leaves the ring, and then Ronnie Garvin takes Rob and slams him and then climbs on the top rope and jumps off in his throat and matches over. Wow. So uh, pretty darn nasty, nasty way to get beat. So uh, Les starts asking Ron Wright in this profile about, is he familiar with Big Bad John? Because I don't think Les knew much about John, to be honest with you. So Ron said, yes, yeah, yeah, Les, I know about him. He goes, uh, he started telling Les the story. He said, you know, I went on a two-week wrestling trip in 1972 down to Tampa. And he says, uh, that guy put me in that same hole you know, that he just had on Rob in the video. And he talked about how dangerous Ronnie Garvin's top rope jump was, you know, and that the injuries 
Well, not just since he came here from it, but all over the country. Everywhere Garvin had been, he'd left guys hurt from doing that jump off the top rope. Mm. And he warned wrestlers, other wrestlers, that, you know, we're friends of his, guys out there watching, you know, I got to tell you, this combination here of Garvin and Big Bad John is a very, very dangerous deal. Somebody's going to get hurt, maybe a lot of us, you know. So so I went out. I was watching the profile. So I went out, and I, I just kind of got involved in the end of the profile. And I stood between the two of them. They were sitting there in chairs like they normally did on the profile. And it was the first time I'd been seen in public since 13 days earlier in the match with Terry Funk. I was blown away by the crowd's applause when they saw who it was. And then uh, my voice was still raspy, uh, and I I wasn't nearly well from the knee drop I took from Garvin off the top rope in the three days I'd spent in the hospital. And I apologized for the interruption, and then I spoke a few words. Mm. Uh, and I told how I had first seen Big Bad John in Florida when I was a young wrestler, and I'd also felt the pain of that hangman hold. And I wish Ron Luck at winning the Southeastern title the following Friday night from Garvin. And I said, I hope you have someone, Ron, to watch you back, you know, because of Big Bad John. And I said, Ron, you've been one of the toughest opponents I've ever had in my career. And I know if anybody's got an opportunity to get this done, it's going to be you. Well, Ron, being the guy he was, man, he got up and he hugged my neck, man. And he thanked me. The crowd popped, obviously, and it ended up being one hell of a profile. It was set up great for Ron Wright to have a shot to Ronnie Garvin, who is at this point the unstoppable guy in Southeastern. And mm. now he's got an unstoppable manager, too. So Jimmy Golden, Mike Stallings, Tor Tanaka, they come and join Les at the set for the third segment. Then Les ran the video of Tanaka's win over Homer Odell from the night before. And fans in the studio erupted, and I'm sure those at home did as well when they saw Tanaka get the pin on Homer Odell and end Homer Odell's long Southeastern run. Uh, Tanaka standing behind Jimmy and Stallings, he had a big smile on his face. And Jimmy started describing what was on the giant screen behind him. You know, fans were still watching that on the screen behind those guys. And, the, you know, because it was the last time they were going to see Homer Odell, Jimmy said. And Tanaka had the big smile on his face. He was all He was all happy about it. That Tanaka beat him last night in the Southeastern Lose or Leave match, and, and uh, Homer Odell is history. So Les congratulated Tanaka, and he bowed to Les, and he said something, but nobody knew what the hell it was. I mean, it was like uh, Tanaka always did. You didn't know what the hell he was saying. They couldn't figure it out. But uh, he asked Les, then uh, Jimmy took, took it from there, and he asked Les if, if they could see what happened in their victory over the Von Steigers from the night before. It was a great tag match, man. It was their first title defense after winning the tag championship in the Coliseum on the World Title Day. And the video showed Jimmy drop kicking Kurt Von Steiger from the top rope out of the ring. And Stallings was applying a sleeper hold to Carl at the same damn time. And then uh, Louis Tillette came from the dressing room. He nailed Stallings from behind, then dislodged him from the sleeper hold. Uh, then he threw Jimmy Golden out of the ring to Kurt, who was still out there on the floor. And uh, Kurt ran Jimmy into the steel ring post head first. And then both of them climbed back in the ring. Kurt went back in the ring. And both of them, uh, with, uh, along with Tillette, started beating down Stalins. The boy that packed house in Chilhai Park Indoor Arena, which we were still drawing those big crowds in that 4,000 area, much more than probably should have been in that building. But that building was just rocking, and uh, <laughs> and uh, Jimmy was bleeding. Uh, he once he got back into the ring, and the three heels, you know, now there's Tillette, there's the two Von Steigers, and they're they're beating the heck out of the, both of those boys. And here comes the big Japanese monster man, Tanaka. And once Tanaka got to the ring, boy, that building really exploded. And uh, Golan and Stalin's kind of joined in, and they all fought back to the heels dressing room. They fought through the crowd. It was it was a pretty nasty little scene. And once they got back there, the studio audience watched this. They loved the video. Uh, Jimmy thanked Tanaka for his help. Stalin started talking about a six-man elimination tag that they wanted for the next Friday with all the same guys that were just in the ring there, in the ring again. He explained the rules. Like I said, every time a guy lost, he had to go to the dressing room. 
until one team was totally defeated. Then Les told uh, Stallings, he said, you know, I'm happy to tell you, man, you got your match. It is going to be a six-man elimination tag the following Friday. So they told him they were all going to be together, not only in that match, but he says, you're in a tag match right now, all six of you. And uh, so, boy, the studio crowd popped. They didn't get very many six-man tags in the studio. And this was to a great team, Southeastern Tag Champions, plus Tor Tanaka. And, boy, they went in the ring. And they did just about to what their their job, boys, what uh, <laughs> Garvin and Mephisto had done before them. I mean, they wore those guys out. It was quick. And Von Steigers and Louie took the next interview, and they talked about their strategy that they, they had put in place to win this elimination match. And Ron Wright closed the show with another good old Tennessee dog whooping by a guy. <laughs> and uh, all in all, my gosh, it was a great TV. I mean, it was a, a lot more than I expected out of it. It was a great way to close. I mean, Ron got into a little bit of that, that dog whipping in the profile, but <laughs> but my gosh, the last interview was 10 minutes of a good old Tennessee dog whooping. And when he finished, I bet he, he had them all standing up. He was really something else, boy, on the microphone. As you said, it did sound like another great TV show. All right, Ron, this is a good place to take a break. Let's do that. We'll come back, and this studcast will continue in moments right here. Super Studcast number 34, COVID-19's Destruction of Wrestling, Part 2, is now available. Four more individuals are added to the three from Part 1 to totally expose what COVID-19 has done to wrestling. At tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Three hours of shocking wrestling history for only $2.99. Find out why the sport is suffering so badly. And great news, Super Studcast number 35 will be the first ever interactive question and answer super studcast you can actually talk with the stud ask your question on air and be a part of super studcast number 35 studcast fans and super studcast patrons can leave their questions now through november 19th on ron's facebook page ron fuller the tennessee stud if you're not already friends with ron there simply like follow and leave your question if your question is selected you'll be contacted by ron then ask the stud your question and have a conversation with him on the air at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast don't miss this unique opportunity to be a part of one of the most popular podcasts out there and talk to a legend david summers back again with ron fuller the tennessee stud on another studcast and we're about to take off again but don't forget at tnstud.com tnstud.com you can find it all every studcast is available there, and every Super Studcast is available there as well. You'll find T-shirts. You will find photos. If you're getting ready for Christmas, now's the time to get your orders in at tnstud.com. All right, so where to next, Ron? Well, how about we give everybody the results of that card on October 29th, 76? It was going to be another wild night uh, with two major injuries in this card. Uh, one of them's pretty bad injury, as a matter of fact. So the opening match was a 20-minute time limit draw between Don Wright, who hadn't been there in a while, against David Schultz. The second match was another 20-minute time limit draw. This time it was between the Gladiator, Dick Steinborn, and a great newcomer, Rip Smith, who's really going to make his mark here in Southeastern. He's really got a he, – he, I thought he really had a great future ahead of him. This was a babyface match. And the fans really got into it. Uh, Dick Steinborn, the gladiator, he was such a classic wrestler. And and he could get everything out of these young baby faces, boy, in these baby face type matches. And he had had several of them in the last few weeks. Steinborn was so talented, and he was really an amazingly talented wrestler. Third match was the great Mephisto against Don Canoodle. It was the first real heat of the night. And Mephisto seemed to be still upset over Canoodle's camel jockey comment on TV. And uh, Canoodle won uh, when Mephisto got himself disqualified. So uh, Don Canoodle ends up winning over great Mephisto. Pretty good win for a youngster. Fourth match was something wild. And the beginning of a three-month program that would focus on Dick Steinborn and the Gladiator, the one I talked about in today's training. Or should I say the Gladiators? <laughs> you know. 
So uh, since it was a six-man tag elimination, when you lost, you had to return to the dressing room. The Von Steiger brothers and Louis Tillette seemed to have a game plan, and they executed it in the early portion of this match to perfection. They end up beating Mike Stallings first. Then they end up beating Jimmy Golden. And that left Tor Tanaka in the ring against all three of them. Now, they're, in this, they're still having to tag out, but he's got nobody to tag out. It's just Tanaka against three guys. And the crowd really got into the match at this point. It was like, boy, they, they loved Tanaka. They really believed in, in, that he could beat them all. You know, so Tanaka fought like crazy during the latter part of this match, and he got his first pin on Louis Tillette. And then, not long afterward, he got a pin on Kurt Von Steiger. Wow. Now the match was down to one-on-one, and it was it was probably 30, 40 minutes in, and Tanaka appeared to be going to take the win. After being down three men to one, it's pretty amazing to come back and win an elimination tag match after that. The crowd was on its feet. The noise was just deafening. I mean, they were really into it. And suddenly, from the dressing room came both Louis Tillette, Kurt Von Steiger, the two guys that were involved earlier, back to the ring. But also with them came the great Mephisto and David Schultz. So four guys hit the ring now, and there's already one in there with Tanaka. So... Uh, the referee immediately rang the bell. I mean, the match was over. I mean, obviously, you're going to get disqualified. You got five on one now, right? So, and then they grabbed the referee and they just threw him over the top rope. So the bell just kept ringing continuously. <laughs> All five wrestlers just pulverizing Tanaka. So, man, I watched uh, from the match from upstairs and the fans started pushing toward the ring. You know, they're, they're going to help Tanaka. They were about to get there and the gladiator finally arrived. He was the first guy to arrive to help Tanaka. And he started to turn the tide, but they stopped him right away. And the Von Steigers and Mephisto kind of took him off to one side of the ring. Mephisto picked him up like he was going to pile drive him. And the two Von Steiger brothers took one of his legs and they what I called a super pile drive him. Wow. Man. It looked like they drove his head through the ring. It was wow. like, wow. It looked like it killed him. About that time, Jimmy Gold and Mike Stallings, they get there. And now the building, man, this sheer bedlam in there. People are just going crazy. And the brawl continued for a couple more minutes. The gladiator just laid there. I mean, he never moved. And finally, all five peels headed for the dressing room. And, and then everybody got to looking at the gladiator. And, uh, and he was unconscious. He was out. So after several minutes, the medical crew, there was a medical crew in the parks facility that went there, and then an ambulance was called. And they had a hard time re- getting him revived, getting him conscious again. And they brought the med- then the ambulance crew just took him straight out. Like the same thing that happened, oddly enough, to me, just uh, days earlier, you know. And uh, they took him out to the hospital. And fans were still surrounding the ring as it was taking him out. Loaded him in the ambulance at the back of the building. It's not a pretty thing. And and for me, having been through it, I really felt for Dick. I mean, it was like, wow, I hope the heck he's going to be all right. And it had been, that match had been one of the wildest finishes I'd ever seen in Southeastern since we'd been there. Dick Steinborn suffered a severe concussion. Whoa. Uh, the concussion protocol, you know, like they do with football players and other athletes today. They told him no wrestling for for two months. You know, they said, uh, you know, you've been out. He was probably out for six, seven minutes. So he went home and went back to Orlando. And, uh, you know, but all of a sudden now, as I said, though, all of a sudden, two weeks later, there's going to be a gladiator back. And he's going to be a partner with great Mephisto, the third Dick Steinborn. <laughs> So I'm going to start playing with fans' minds here, man, uh, right away with this new gladiator. Yeah, I'll say so, because Dick Steinborn had never been a heel in Southeastern. So why was the gladiator now a heel and especially team with the same man who hurt him? Hey, don't you think everybody out there was asking? That's what everybody was asking. Wait a minute. Now, wait a minute here. What the heck is this? You know, so. 
So I knew that, you know, there would be questions about that. So that's why I wanted to start the show with the Booker's focus uh, today and right. uh, today's training, you know, because of this angle that I'd been working. And this angle is going to continue now for another two months, almost three months. And it's going to have a really crazy ending on it. I'm going to freak them out for two months and then I'm going to really freak them out. So <laughs> I'm having some fun during this, man, the whole time. So the, the confusion was intentional, obviously. Yeah, I knew there were going to be questions about that. And uh, that's why I started the show with the Booker's focus on Dick Steinborn and today's training earlier in the studcast. Mm -hmm. My suggestions for those with questions is uh, people maybe should go back and listen to the day's training again because the answer is there. <laughs> so, so, All right. So uh, yeah. it, I'm, I'm, I'm having a good time with the fans, man. I'm really enjoying this, <laughs> Dave. All right. And I think I'm going to have to do that with them, but not until I hear what happened in the main event that night with Ron Wright wrestling Ronnie Garvin for the Southeastern Championship. Okay, Dave, here we go. I mean, uh, Ron Wright took my advice that I gave him on the personality profile six days before on the TV about having somebody to watch his back. So he brought his brother, Don Wright, down to the ring with him. <laughs> Right straight down to the ring with him and said, uh, you know, stand in my corner here, Don. So, uh, you know, when Ronnie Garvin and Big Bad John came to the ring, that crowd was on fire, man. After, especially after they just watched what happened to poor Dick Steinborn getting carried out. Now, mm -hmm. Big Bad John started immediately working on the referee and the crowd got the microphone. He demanded to see Don Wright's Tennessee Athletic Commission license to be a manager. <laughs> and uh, the crowd booed the big Texan boy. <laughs> and uh, they booed him long and loud, too, because Don Wright had to go back upstairs and get the license. And uh, the whole time he was gone, the crowd never shut up. They booed and booed and booed. So finally, Don Wright came back. He showed it to the referee. The referee showed it to the timekeeper, the announcer. And uh, then was there was a huge pop from the crowd once Big John found out that this was going to happen, you know, and he seemed to be upset. They'd never seen him upset. So he got a little bit perturbed by the fact that Don Wright's going to be allowed to stay at the ring. So the match was made before the bell rang, kind of like the world championship match with Terry Funk and I, in which Terry took that long walk to the ring. And then we had that face to face. This match started almost the same way. People were so into it by the time it started. There was no way it was going to be a bad match. And then Ron Wright didn't take any chance. I mean, he tore right into Garvin, right from the opening bell. And the fans never sat down during this entire match. That building was rocking. Garvin took over, but it didn't even stop the fans. They started chanting, man, kind of like in the, some sporting events. It was go, Ron, go, go, Ron, go, that, and everybody in the building. And then Ron started his comeback. And, uh, boy, when he did, it it turned into good old Tennessee dog whooping in. You know, he just really tore into him. Garvin was bleeding for the first time since he'd arrived at Southeastern. He was bloody. And Ron kept going for the pin, pin after pin until Big Bad John was just forced to jump up on the apron of the ring. Well, when he did that, the referee obviously uh, rang the bell, disqualified Garvin. And when he raised Ron's hand, then uh, Don was on his way around the ring toward Big Bad John. He was going to try to pull him off the apron and make sure he didn't do something to his brother. Ron's got his hand in the air, and Garvin nailed Ron right from behind. He threw Ron over the top rope. About that same time, Don's really got his eye on what's happening over there. He's not watching Big Bad John. And Big Bad John ran down the apron, and he dived off on top of poor little Don Wright, man. Wow. I mean, you know, he's a she, he's 350 pounds of, I mean, heavy weight, and he just smushed Don into the concrete. And Garvin went out, and he grabbed Ron Wright. that He'd thrown him out already, and he ran him face first into the post. And now Ron was bleeding. So the referee just kept the bell ringing. And it's the second match out of control that night. It was crazy. The big Texan, obviously, he threw Don right up into the ring. Ronnie Garvin suplexed Don in the middle of the ring. He climbed the top rope. 
and he jumped off in his throat. Now, the bell's still ringing. I mean, this is not going to be a win. You know, he's already lost the match. But uh, then the big Texan, he, he, he booted the run right off the apron of the ring, back down onto the floor, and he stepped over the top rope. He grabbed the limp body of his brother, Don Wright, and he grabbed him around the chin, and he swung his body around and onto his back, and, uh, and he hung him right there in front of Ron Wright. Ron Wright's on the floor trying to get up, and big old Big Bad John's got his brother Don Wright on his back and his hangman. Wow. Uh, and then to make it worse, Ron trying his best to get in there and save his brother, and Garvin kept kicking him off. So when Big Bad John finally dropped Don Wright to leave the ring, there was no place for him and Garvin to go. I mean, a mob of fans had clogged that entire aisleway. The heels exit was gone. It was no way to get out. So they, they're being the smart heels they were. They took the baby face exit. They went, nobody was there to stop them from going that way. And uh, they got out of there with their lives. I mean, they were about to get hurt. Don Wright got carried back to the dressing room. He was pretty darn hurt himself. So I saw that night that there was a huge difference between Homer Odell and his fear of riots and the crowd compared to Big Bad John. Mm. You know, Homer in that same situation would arrived in the dressing room horrified and white as a ghost. Instead, <laughs> instead, Big Bad John came through the door and he was laughing a big old loud laugh. <laughs> you know? Sound like it was a perfect laugh for a monster in a horror movie. I mean, you know, and again, as Barnett would say, I could see nothing but money, money, money. <laughs> I got I gotta ask you about this hangman. Because in modern day wrestling, I've never seen anything like it. Is it was that just kind of a one of a kind deal back then? Was it banned? Well, tell me more about that. Oh, that that finishing move. It was allowed. I mean, they they allowed it for years in Florida when I was there in '72, and Big Bad John was in the crew. He was one of the stars, and I was just getting off the ground and trying to learn learn the art. And mm -hmm. yeah, it was a very nasty looking move, and and he did it to me several times there in Florida, and it hurt. It really was a, it was a very painful move, but, uh, you know, they allowed him to do it and, uh, you know, it worked great. I mean, I, I wanted him to do it when he came because I felt like that Garvin already had so much heat, but I knew that if we could add that element to it, uh, we'd have two real stars there in no time at all. Oh, no doubt. But over time, over the years, have you seen any other wrestler do a similar move where you thought, well, that, that looks like the hangman? No. I don't think I ever saw anybody else do that move. And uh, because John was 6'6", six, six, yeah. uh, when he threw somebody up on his back and they're back-to-back, -back, the guy's laying on his back. You know, he and didn't have a problem with his feet dragging the floor or anything like that. Right. And when he bent forward, then the guy's feet were just hanging. It was truly a hangman. It was a great name for that move. And he's holding them by their chin. By the chin. He just puts his hands around their chin <laughs> and then he... <laughs> And their heads are back of his head. The back of their head is about just below the back of his head. And he hangs them. He hung them. Bad. So it was a hell of a finish. And uh, it was perfect for those two guys. Oh, no doubt. I got to say, man, you thought you had a real monster when Garvin arrived. Now you've got two of them. I can't imagine about their future. All right. I think it's time for us to get that cold drink. Let's take a seat under the learning tree. What was the question again, and who was the person that sent the question in, Ron? Well, the learning tree question of the day comes from a gentleman named uh, Jeremy Harlan. And Jeremy asked, uh, when you were injured in the Terry Funk championship match, you must have had uh, ideas as the booker for yourself after that match. How frustrating was it for you when you could not wrestle and help your own company when you were maybe the hottest as a babyface since Southeastern had started? That's a great question. Uh, it's certainly apropos, it, and it comes right after this Terry Funk event pretty close, so uh, that's why I chose it for today. You know, there's an old saying, or at least I've always said this, and I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm the only one that ever said this, but bookers make plans and injuries destroy them. It's mm -hmm. a simple deal, you know, and yeah. Yeah. that's what happened in that finish with Terry Funk. I had plans. For me and Garvin to to take off, 
And, uh, and boy, that injury destroyed my plans right away. And uh, that's always been the way in the wrestling, in the wrestling world. Uh, you know, guys get hurt. You don't expect it. And you got to change everything. So obviously, I'd put a great deal of time and thought into the entire Terry Funk NWA World Title Day uh, in October of 1976. I'd planned for months in advance. I mean, we talked about it earlier in the show that I talked about it here on the program, all the things. I created details and ideas for almost every week on TV. Uh, I knew exactly what I was going to do in the buildup for that big day in uh, October. I spent almost as much time thinking about what else I, I was going to do after the big day as well, you know, mm -hmm. uh, because I had said uh, a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about that match, you don't want to have a world championship match and then don't have anything to follow it. So I had something to follow it that was maybe as good or better than the world championship match. Mm -hmm. So planning for that big day was not nearly as difficult, though, as making it happen. A tremendous amount of coordination was necessary to get all the Terry Funk's interviews done and delivered and coordinating dates on Dory Jr.'s uh, two trips to Knoxville and making the arrangements for him once he arrived, getting Don Carson set up to do that rendezvous with Terry Funk in Florida for that great interview, one interview, one three-minute interview. Uh, I spent days working on trying to get that all set up. Uh, I'm sure very few people probably are aware that I didn't even have a wrestling office or a single employee at Southeastern Wrestling. <laughs> That's crazy. I think people will go, oh, that can't be true. That's the God's truth. Right. Uh, I ran my company off of my dining room table. <laughs> I had no office. I didn't have any employees. Why not? Promoting something like the NWA World Title Day in October 76 was an absolute nightmare for me. Uh, so much had to happen to make a big event like that a successful one. I worked 18 hours a day, including the time spent on the road and wrestling every night for months prior to that event, uh, just trying to make it all happen. In my hockey companies, later on, after I get out of wrestling, I'm going to have these large offices, and they're going to be filled with full-time employees. In my ADT company, I'm going to have four offices in the state of Florida. I'm going to have over 100 employees. So wow. looking back at wrestling, and especially at Southeastern Knoxville, it was a cakewalk. Running that was simple compared to all these other things I'm going to get into down the line. So I'm amazed that for a 26-year-old boy with no employees, I somehow managed to get that big world championship to be such a huge success. No kidding. So, Mr. Harlan, you know, I had my book full of ideas <laughs> to answer your question. For me and Ronnie Garvin, days before the world title match, I, I had a, and you know, I had plans for us after the angle in the funk match, all the way into January of 1977. Uh, I was going to be the hottest babyface yet after the funk match. So far in my journey in Southeastern, I was going to be really, really hot after that. I had a huge program set for me and Garvin that included every type of match imaginable. For 12 straight weeks, we were going to be the main event. Uh, one jump off the top rope in the Coliseum on October 10th, and everything changed just like that. Bam. So when I got home from the hospital three days after that match, the first thing I did was tear out page after page in my booking book of me versus Garvin as the main event. I tried not to cry while I was doing it. I was like, oh, my God, look, at this is all gone. And all of them was obviously headlined by me and Ronnie Garvin. Uh, I was much more than frustrated, Mr. Harlan. <laughs> I was devastated. I was more like devastated, I'll tell you that. And wow. had it not happened, I would have been the strongest baby face so far in Southeastern, I think, uh, easily. So Ronnie Garvin was already one of the hottest heels after that afternoon. The amazing part was he had only been in Southeastern for three weeks when this world championship match started. I was in a perfect position to get him over in that next 10 weeks, like these long programs that I had, probably get him over better than any wrestling it had ever been in that part of the country. So we're in a tough time of year uh, right then. We're in October and November and December particularly is really hard. So it was a tough time of year to make money. Only Thanksgiving night and Christmas night 
were the only two of the nights that had potential to be big cards and big nights. Those two nights weren't available in the Coliseum. I would have gone back to the Coliseum. But that meant that the best two nights of the next 10 were going to be turnaway crowds from the Jacobs building uh, in Chihai Park, which that's nothing to sneeze about and be unhappy about. I mean, uh, John Kazana would have loved to have those turnaway crowds. Plus, I'd increased the size of that building for almost almost 2,000 people. So those two nights both had the potential to draw as many people in the Coliseum, probably what we had just done in a Terry Funk match, Thanksgiving and Christmas. Could have been just as big as the Funk match. So I want to thank Mr. Harlan. Uh, your question, sir, was a very astute one. <laughs> it definitely was. The timing of my injury wasn't good. It was very frustrating. But so was every injury I ever got. Uh, the most important thing was that I, ple- I completely recovered from it, and I was able to return to action on Thanksgiving night against Ronnie Garvin. Wow. You said you still feel the effects from that injury. Was this the biggest injury of your career, or was there anything worse that came along? Probably knees, man. I got knees coming in the future in uh, operations, and, you know, wow. Uh, it's going to get much, much harder for me. Uh, but, you know, I still have a spot on my throat. And when I reach up there and I feel it, it makes me think of Ronnie Garvin. <laughs> I can't help it. That's my first thought. When And it swells up sometimes in certain weather. It will get bigger and it bothers me to swallow. But, uh, you know, like I said, I fully recovered. And, uh, you know, and, and I've made it. Uh, wow. A long time since that's happened, and and I'm still here. Still hanging in there, stud. All right, listen, you can become friends with the Tennessee Stud on Facebook. Like and follow the Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Stud page. Become friends with a legend. He doesn't mind if you make eye contact. He will even respond to comments on his page. Don't forget to join Ron's other Facebook page, author Ron Fuller Welch, to find out everything about Ron's red-hot novel. It's called Brutus. You can get an autographed copy at tnstud.com. Click Stud Store. A ton of stuff available in the Stud Store right now, including DVDs, T-shirts, photos, and more. At Twitter, it's Ron Fuller Welch. Part 2 of Super Studcast number 34, COVID-19's Destruction of Wrestling, is now available. And Ron, I bet you got a few words you could say about the upcoming special interactive Ask the Stud, Super Studcast number 35. What's that all about? Well, yeah, I would like to say something about this, Dave. It's it's something that that we've never done. It's going to be the first interactive Studcast I've done. It's going to be a Super Studcast. It will be number 35. And it's going to give fans the opportunity for the first time to actually ask me questions live. And I'll be able to answer them live, and I'll be able to have a conversation with those fans. So StudCast fans, this is going to include StudCast fans and Super StudCast patrons. And if they want to get involved in this uh, and they want to ask me a question, don't care what the question is, ask me whatever question it is. You can send those questions now to my Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Stud Facebook site. And that's all you do. Go to Facebook. Uh, go on Ron Fuller, Tennessee Stud. All you have to do is like and follow me there, and then you can leave your questions. I'll be accepting questions there from now until November 19th of 2020. Uh, Super Studcast 35 is going to be the only place you can hear this special interactive podcast. The fans and the, and and where the fans are going to have the opportunity to speak to me, and I will be able to speak to them for the first time. It's a super stud cast. So patrons that have been uh, really, really great, uh, I'll have opportunity to talk to them. And if you're just a normal stud cast fan, uh, you can still leave your questions and and you can uh, go and hear that program on Patreon and you'll be able to hear yourself. So I'm really looking forward to it. I love answering questions. Uh, I really am comfortable with that. And I feel like I'm going to be able to talk to as many as 30 maybe 40 people in the three hours of that Super Stud cast. That Super Stud cast will drop on Tuesday, November 10th. And uh, it's going to be really big, and I think it's going to be lots of fun. 
I'm going to call in just so I can say a uh, long time listener, first time caller. I've, that's all I can come <laughs> up with. I, anyway, that, that's going to be a lot of fun though. And, and that's going to be pretty cool because you're going to be going, go ahead, caller. Are you there? All right. So, all right. Where are you headed to next week, Ron? What's going on? Well, we're going to put on another hat next week's today's training. Obviously we're not going back as we did today as a booker. We're going to have another hat. And so many fans that are out there, they make the comments, they thank me for the education that a lot of them call it the education they're getting from listening to my studcast. And I really appreciate that. That's what one of my goals were when I started this, is mm-hmm. to educate the fans that listen about old school wrestling and what it was really all about. And we're going to continue the story of the new dangerous combination with Ronnie Garvin and Big Bad John. Those guys are just getting started. And they're going to work their way through some baby faces in the Southeast in November of 1976. We're going into November of 1976 on this next one. We'll also update fans on what's happening in the smaller Southeastern cities that I have neglected to mention much. And we're breaking records there every week in these smaller places that hadn't had wrestling before Mm -hmm. or that now are really, really into what's going on. Uh, Then we're going to finish, obviously, with another great learning tree question. And I want to thank all my listeners out there, Dave, and and all around the world for your support. And we we break records here, man. Uh, Broke one uh, just a couple of weeks ago. And I think I got the best fans in the world out there. And uh, please take care of yourselves, all of you, and others around you. And uh, may God bless us all. Well, God bless you too, Stud. Another another fun job, another great show. This is David Summers thanking you for joining us today and reminding you Ron Fuller's Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.